How are you going to scale this in Africa? Are you sure you're going to find talent? Are you sure you're going to be able to sign up that? Are you, you see what I mean? So we try at least to build the portfolio in such a way that like each of these things kind of like validates something and it can be scaled. So if we hire two PhDs for this project, can we work with the Ministry of Education, with the universities, you know, across the board? What are your ambitions? Like how many PhDs do you want to get trained in bioinformatics? Yasser Bias is the chief executive of UM6P Ventures, the venture fund of University Mohammed VI Polytechnic in Morocco. And he joins us to talk about why it focuses on deep tech and builds and invests not just in spin-outs from its home institution or even just across the country, but throughout Africa and beyond. UM6P Ventures is a relatively young fund. It was set up in 2019, but that hasn't stopped it from coming up with some interesting programs that even Silicon Valley where Yasser spent the majority of his early career could learn from. Yasser also ponders why UM6P Ventures focuses on agrobioscience, health tech, energy, AI, and industry 4.0, and why that means a report identifying Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, and Kenya as the big players in Africa might not be telling the full story. My name is Thierry Hillis, and you are listening to Talking Tech Transfer. <laughs> Yasser, welcome. Thank you very much for having me today with you. It's a pleasure to have you. I look forward to con- con- <laughs> I look forward to the conversation. I do as well. Already struggling to get the words out. To start with, can you give me an overview of UM6P Ventures, perhaps with some key figures? Sure. So UM6P Ventures is VC arm of University of Mohammed VI Polytechnic. So we are essentially Ventures arms for the university to help the university extend its mission beyond just education and prototyping. Our mission is to do investments and venture building for the transition from lab to market. So generally, especially in deep tech, investments are very, very tricky in an early stage. And so we sort of act as a buffer to de-risk, if you will, the project and transforming it to an asset for it to become investable by essentially, you know, other investors as well. What prompted the creation of your know, 6P Ventures then? Because you are a fairly new organization still. Yes. Yeah. So the university is pretty young, huge um, ambitions. And innovation and entrepreneurship have become the integral part, uh, you know, within education. And so our university does support, they have actually incubation and acceleration type of programs for general entrepreneurship. I mean, obviously, deep tech being a different type of animal requires a different support system. We're pushing for that as well. So, I mean, if you will, you know, even conventional or traditional universities have been establishing technology licensing centers and the like so that they can kind of interface and push out, you know, outbound some of these IP. So, I mean, obviously our university as well intends to continue to essentially to push for innovation, you know, towards the market and not just to consider that, you know, the university is done when IP is published. So it's a general trend. It's just that, you know, we each do it differently. Yeah, yeah, of course. You don't just work with companies out of the university, though. Why are you targeting a broader range of startups? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, so our deal flow is not explicit or specific to our university. So unlike other VCs that are kind of acting almost like a corporate VC, meaning whose mission is to just take IP or, you know, any kind of like innovation, you know, outbound, you know, to the market. Our university has a broader mission even throughout Africa. And so the, our university has been working with a network of other universities to push for excellence and just mentioning one thing out of many. For example, our university has 
partnership with international universities and trying to push for centers of excellence across Africa. So our mission is not just our university, but essentially the whole ecosystem at large. So we have responsibility to work and, you know, contribute to the ecosystem in Morocco and even more grandly, you know, across Africa. So I have these partnerships. And so it becomes our mission to help them get there. How do you go about sourcing your deals then? Yeah, so I mean, essentially, we have a couple of ways of sourcing. I mean, obviously, there are all the opportunities that emerge out of the universities. We have, you know, platforms and, you know, labs and so forth. And so sometimes you have these organic type of ventures that kind of emerge. But we also work, you know, with other campuses so that we can work with them as well. And so sometimes, for example, for like a big bet type of science, or at least like industry, say, for example, agrobiosciences, what we'll do is essentially, you know, call for applications locally but also internationally. And so if we feel that, you know, other startups abroad, internationally, anywhere in the world, can be a good reference model for us, you know, we'll go after it because it becomes for us a beacon to something that other startups will want to attain. So that's why we have a multi-pronged sourcing strategy. I know I've been getting a lot this type of question, which is, do you work on organic deal flow? No. National? Yes. Uh, You know, continental? Yes. And even broader internationally, yes, if there is learning and synergies, because the whole idea is not just for us to abuse of the startups of their patients to learn, but I think that we're bringing also something that other investors cannot put on the table. And we can discuss that, but namely, it's the support system and venture building capability. So I can elaborate on that later. We will get back to that. But you mentioned agrobiosciences as well. You focus on three verticals, the others being health tech and energy, and then horizontals being industry 4.0 and AI cybersecurity. Why the focus on these sectors? Yeah. And why they are arranged that way. So, I mean, at least first, let me just explain to you the difference between what I call vertical, what I call horizontal. So, I mean, if you will, agrobiosciences, and I described that nomenclature, is for me vertical because it has depth, right? It has its own applications. But artificial intelligence, or, you know, Internet of Things, these are more horizontal. There is no such thing as just pure AI. It's AI in healthcare, in farming, in biotech, or something like that. And same for IoT if it's deployed somewhere. So at least that explains at least the structure of the verticality and the horizontality. And so now you'll ask, like, why these topics? And so the thing is that this was kind of precursor to the current kind of situation and, you know, at least like, um, you know, food crisis and the energy crisis and so forth. It is just to take note of the fact that the future is carried by securities and everything that is food, the food system, production and consumption system, right? Or conditioning, health and energy are vital. And these things have been just amplified now that we have gone out of, you know, I mean, essentially of COVID just to find out that we have all these things to deal with. You know, obviously, you know, our university, you know, ecosystem partners of universities and others, they have a lot of value to bring in into the game. So just to describe these three verticals, as you mentioned, agrobiosciences, health, and energy. So let me even start backwards. So energy, in our university, we have the green energy park, and we have a lot of partners in energy. So many of these solutions just emerge out of that park or, you know, with other partners. And I mean, obviously, you know, we have a few startups in that portfolio from production to optimizations, battery side, and so forth. On the health side, we have also an internal institution within our university. That, for example, you know, during COVID, you know, they had developed this di- COVID diagnostic solution just with light, with photonics. So we do cover health on a number of different areas, but it's not as mature. So, yeah, we have a few startups doing AI in healthcare. So it's essentially malformation diagnostics. 
We have, you know, like non-intrusive diagnostics with photonics. We have a couple of startups working on some treatments, you know, monoclonal antibodies and the likes. But the area that is of utmost focus, and I'll explain is also the reason why we're doing agrobiosciences is a big bet. I mean, for one thing, agrobiosciences, you know, and like how we see it's presented in many other places, it's not just like ACTEC as an IoT, right? Or like, you know, marketplaces. We actually go into the physics, chemistry, and biology of the complete system, soil, plant, atmosphere. So for example, you know, we have a few startups that work on spectrometry to characterize soil, understand what's happening there. We work on biologicals as well to understand what kind of living you have in the soil and how that interacts with the plant. On the plant side, for example, we work with startups that do CRISPR and others that do alternatives to CRISPR, which is, you know, chemical induced, you know, mutagenesis so that, you know, even with the regulation, you know, you have at least two alternatives. We work on biologicals for plant, you know, biocontrol, biopest, pesticides and so forth. We do post-harvest loss. So it's essentially, you know, treatment for produce so that it features, you know, extended shelf life and the likes. So anyways, I'm sorry, I just kind of, you know, red hold on, you know, essentially this verticality and explained at least, you know, the extent of how we push, you know, in any one of those verticals. Was that focus there from the outset or did that come organically? To be totally kind of transparent and honest with you. So we kind of launched at the same time, you know, the agrobiosciences and the health verticals. And, you know, obviously, you know, agriculture is going to be easier because for one thing, everybody needs to eat. And also agriculture is more dominant in Africa. So you have more pathways to get into these type of things. A lot of biologists, chemists and so forth that are kind of in that field. So it's just a little bit, I will say, a little bit more organic as a business. In health, it's a little bit more convoluted. Why? It's just because, I mean, even getting funded for those things is a little bit trickier. The cycles, regulation, and so forth, you know, are a little bit trickier as well. But we have a healthy portfolio. I mentioned a few, and I just kind of recalled. We also have a couple of startups that are in Africa. For example, one is, you know, working with pharmas in the U.S. that are working on FDA-approved drugs. And so, you know, we want to make sure that there is medicinal efficacy in Africa. And so that means that we want to have representation also of samples being in the um, test phases, developing the drug. You know, other startups are, you know, obviously in online pharmas and so forth. So that's why it's a choice. It's, it's just, honestly, it's just, you know, organic opportunity. You know, you have much fewer partners, if you will, in health. It's just, it's it, a lot of generics and so forth, but the, you know, utmost R&D is still not there here yet. But in agrobiosciences, we are essentially, I think, we're ahead. At least, you know, we are in the front rows. Yeah, I think the very first time I came across you, it was a deal in an agrobioscience business. So that's kind of the view I've had of UM6P Ventures in my head anyway. As you mentioned, you're quite keen on venture building as well, rather than just investing in existing startups. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that process works? Yeah, and also it's genesis. So, I mean, essentially, I mean, as you know, we're investing in startups in deep tech, and we have that experience as well, investing in the US. I mean, generally, you just invest a ticket, generally it's $200,000. We're talking, by the way, this is seed phase, right? So it's the earlier stages of the investment. So typically, you know, an investor would pour in something like $200,000, $300,000. But generally in deep tech, you know, those startups have access to a range of subsidies. You know, some can be on the side of National Science Foundation, NSF, by way of SEBIR, which is the Small Business Initiative. And so there are many of these mechanisms, and sometimes you can count them in the millions. And so essentially investors in those areas, 
they kind of de-risk, if you will, you know, financially. And so when we talk to these startups, we realize that it's essentially just giving them more money, but it does not necessarily resolve their bottlenecks. One of the bottlenecks, for example, is that you have startups, you have founders, they're working on their stuff, right, on their deal. But, you know, next round investors are going to require, you know, publications and more work on IP. And so that's a distraction for the entrepreneur. And so being that, you know, we're sort of like integrated with, you know, university system, not one university, so the whole system that allows us to fit in for those things for the startup to the benefit of the startup, but helps us also help the local nation in Morocco or Africa because we recruit globally so that, you know, people get trained in the same fold. So that's one thing, which is that, yeah, so it's essentially there is that, but also, so let me just repeat it this way. So, I mean, essentially, you know, the business model remains for the startup, it's CapEx intensive, right? So they raise more money and that money is competing for the same resources, the resources being the people, the experts and the equipment. And so it's a brute force type of approach. And in emerging type of markets, we don't have, you know, those volumes in subsidies. And so I had to find an alternative for the CapEx model with an OPEX model, given that research institutions are endowed and built to continue to build capacity. We're trying to find ways where they can mutualize that capacity, train their people, build their infrastructure in total synergy and cross-pollination with the startup world. And so we have been able to demonstrate at least, so that's why when you were asking where we source, well, sometimes also we want to you know, make sure that our architecture is sound. And so when you're investing in a startup in Israel or in the US, and you can demonstrate that value that I've just demonstrated, which is that you're not just investing capital. You can give them, you know, essentially what capital sometimes cannot afford them. Because if they have, let's say, even a million dollars, I mean, they need to buy equipment and they need to hire scientists. And especially, for example, in biotech, since you mentioned that was the first opportunity. So there was probably precision fermentation. So the thing is that sometimes you need talent beyond your core team. That's what I mean by, you know, at some point, money becomes less efficient. Maybe there are more efficient ways of giving you more of what you want without diluting you in that way. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting because it's not, if you think, oh, they're not just giving capital, you might think, oh, it's just lab equipment that they get access to. But it's also the researchers, which really adds an interesting dimension to the offering. This is the thing. So if you wanted to give people access to equipment and whatnot, I mean, these things have to be thoroughly understood, right? So I remember a couple of years back, we were working on an offer where we had a fab lab at the university. But the thing is that you cannot just tell, you know, founders, there's a fab lab, just go. You need to make sure that, you know, like, for example, even in biotech, that you have reagents, that you have technicians, you know, there's like a whole, you know, bunch of things that need to be done and that need to, you know, be catered to. Yeah. One of the programs that you do offer is the Explorer program. Can you tell me a little bit about this one? Yeah. So let me maybe just take a step back and maybe tell you a little bit more about how our business is structured even more upstream. So what I mentioned is our mission is in continuity to an education environment where you continue to push, if you will, for innovation and entrepreneurship. And so we had to find contiguous functional blocks to take on from the university outward towards the investor realm, startup realm. And so we address two different populations and the mechanics underneath them are totally different. So one of them is essentially entrepreneurs that we call in the general or generalist realm. 
So these are like digital startups, platform type of startups. So the profile of these founders is do not dilute me, but just give me access to an ecosystem and push me from a seed phase type of investment to a series A type of investment. So these type of entrepreneurs, we support them in the following way, a program layer and the money layer. The program layer is incubation for the early stage and acceleration in the later stage. The money side is business angels and VCs. So at this point, even in Morocco, I think that we can call that offer rather complete. We have several incubators, accelerators, and the matching business angel and investors. So please just bear with me. It's just because I wanted to separate what you suggested on Explorer you know, from deep tech. So like we said, deep tech is a different type of animal, which is you know, intensive in capital and equipment and in talent with huge barriers to entry. And so to support and incubate those startups, that's a different pathway. But for the pathway that is specific to generalists and entrepreneurs, it's been what? It was like two years ago when we had just first founded UM6P Ventures. And the question was, how do I integrate with the university into the pool of entrepreneurship? And so what we decided to do that time is collaborate with MIT Sandbox. So MIT Sandbox, it is an internal incubator to MIT. And so we collaborated to create a different model for Africa. So it has already completed four cohorts, and now it's starting the fifth cohort. So the first cohort that was launched was essentially just to demonstrate what type of model that I put at a university so that, you know, we can get the ideation and creative juices, you know, going on. And so the first thing, it was a fund going up to $25,000, residents, if you will, you know, within the program. And so we called for students from our university and MIT to submit, you know, their ideas. Obviously, I mean, you have an investment committee and we had a number of solid mentors from the MIT network, not from MIT, the university itself, but the university itself works with a ton of mentor for their program. And so we could benefit from that. That was, to me, an excellent learning experience because it allowed you to put and stake some money on the table and just try to understand what's working, what's not working from a governance standpoint, from a scalability standpoint and so forth. First cohort was within our own university. And then from the second cohort onward, you know, signed up four or five other universities, two research institutions and five countries in Africa. And so at this point now it's managed as an internal incubator within our university. And just for the sake of completeness, we have a number of different incubators and accelerators within the university. And by the way, when I say with the university, it doesn't mean we work in isolation. Universities in Africa, in the domain of entrepreneurship and innovation, they do work with the local ecosystems. You see what I mean? So it just never works in isolation. So any kind of like local incubator, you're already working with them, right? So anyway, so we have a number of incubators of which Explore, which is with MIT. And then we also have accelerators. I can just mention at least one of them, which is with Plug and Play, which I'm sure you know, uh, US-based. Very famous one. Yeah, I don't think anyone who works in this field has not heard of plug and play accelerator programs. And and we do work with a number. And so, I mean, obviously across Africa, we just try to cross-pollinate. Speaking of Africa more broadly, there was a report done by the African Development Bank in 2021 called Disrupt Funding, which said that Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, and Kenya are the nations that pull in the majority of venture capital funding on the continent. Moroccan startups, according to that study, only raised $29 million last year. What's going on here? What can Morocco do to catch up? Are those numbers correct? Oh, they're, they're, they're most likely correct. I'm not going to refute them. 
And so I'm glad we're having this discussion because I'm trying to do an exercise that actually has a little bit more context and more meaning to it. I mean, like I said, these numbers cannot be refuted. They are a fact. So this is the way I look at things. I prefer not to look at numbers as a static you know, type of animal, right? But try to understand a little bit more what's under their skin. So there is this kind of matter of like, you know, maturity and things take, you know, they may have started like elsewhere differently and so forth. So this is an exercise that needs to be measured over time. So the way I look at these numbers and try to measure the competitiveness of, you know, at least the the Moroccan platform, you know, for entrepreneurship and innovation, I try to look at it this way. So granted, yes, of course, these countries are, you know, today, at least at the top of the list, what's happening with us? So what I do is essentially try to look into the different kind of like industries that are supported in that realm and see if they're catered to in Morocco. And they are. So, I mean, obviously in fintech, we have some champion startups that are emerging in fast moving consumer goods, buy now, pay later, you know, in the reward systems and so forth. We have a lot of startups also emerging in type of like marketplaces and advanced kind of recommendations. And so even if say you're a marketplace with farmer solutions, and you can, I mean, at the end of the day, upsell some services to finance and insurance, right? We have also startups that are active in ERPs, logistics, and essentially all of the themes. So anyways, when I look, like I said, I don't look at a static number. I look into, do we have coverage in these industries? Yes, it's done. And how is the health of our cohorts? So given that we started only like a couple of years back, right? So currently there are some champions standing, you know, solid stands in Series A. They have recruited, you know, investment even at seed stage internationally. So in a nutshell to address, I mean, you know, my answer to you is that I am convinced that the Moroccan platform is very, very competitive. We're tackling the proper industries. It's just these things take time. And also we have the proper, if you will, cohort, you know, scale up coming up. Solid, good champions solid second front, and then more sort of like coming up. But what I wanted also to say is those numbers that you just share with me, they are specific to digital. As far as I know, those numbers and those projections do not contain everything that is deep tech. Why don't they? It's just because with the current projections that those analysts kind of beg on Africa, they don't have in mind 20 startups emerging in biotechnologies. Because they're a different cycle. So that's why what I said is that those numbers are sound to me. Here's how I feel that our competitiveness addresses them. But that's not the whole world. There's a whole other economy that is not even reflected by analysts. And it's the economy of deep tech. And so in there, I think that we're going to be forefront and defining even the mechanics of it, how it benefits the research environment, the research institution, how it builds talent. And, you know, I'm certain that at least, you know, I think anyways that, you know, the top kind of like deep tech startups in Africa are in our portfolio. It's like I said, because a typical incubator and accelerator, you know, does not have it in their courts to think about how I'm going to work with somebody who's working on like an RNA based kind of vaccine or something like that. They cannot even comprehend like the cost structure of it and, you know, what type of, you know, talent you need. You see what I mean? To insert in it. That to me is less than half of the opportunity that is documented. Wow. That makes perfect sense. And yeah, I get it. Fintechs or fast moving consumer goods are easy to understand, easy to analyze because 
they're there. You don't need 15 years of development before you have a product or a service. Yeah. And if I may, and again, I to congratulate Nigeria on making good, you know, on fintech. But it's not because you have a solution that you'll succeed. I mean, fintech, or at least like mobile payments, succeeded in the Philippines and Kenya before they even took up in the U.S. So there's just like such a range of things. And obviously, it started earlier. And as you mentioned, fintech is very organic for investors. They understand those business models. So, I mean, if you have made it your, you know, your champion industry as you're starting up, then good for you. I chose. Yeah, I think you're right. The whole M-Peso was in across Africa before anyone in Europe or the US had heard of mobile payments. So <laughs> does that mean that there is quite an entrepreneurial culture already existing in Morocco? A little bit too much. <laughs> I'm saying this as a joke, but it's also there is a, there is a great dose of truth in it. I think that the startup world has just kind of like stirred the imagination globally. I mean, I've spent my share of time and most of my professional life in the US, so I kind of have a sense of that. But then when you pull yourself out of the US, this kind of like startup ideal becomes such a like an ambition for everyone. And so that's why I think if nothing else, everybody in Morocco and Africa is kind of encouraged a lot more than they are in the US. And I can promise you that to go after entrepreneurship and innovation. So that's why it has become embedded in the education system at the university. And now it's pushing even, you know, for the more kind of like junior, you know, type of classes. It's just so dominant. I think that in terms of contrast ratios, I think that we have more incubators and accelerators in Africa, in Morocco and Africa than, you know, we may do in other places. Even corporates, I mean, they all encourage you. I mean, just go entrepreneurship. It's just, you know, dedicated program. It's a big thing. So that's why, I'm sorry if I kind of just, you know, essentially asked this question for you. So even like yesterday, somebody was asking me on a panel, like, what are the numbers, like the abandonment after three years or whatnot? And it's hard to compare these numbers. Because, you know, in some environments, I mean, you only become an entrepreneur or pursue a startup when you're very convinced. In other places, like, for example, here, it is part of your journey. And so it may not end up being, you know, what you want to pursue, you know, after you're done with your ideation cycles and whatnot. And so that's why you cannot compare numbers where there's a filter beforehand and another one, which is essentially an open class. Yeah. Is there anything that sets Morocco apart from other African nations? In my personal opinion, I try to work on a bigger kind of family. So not looking for advantages, you know, of ones versus others, but rather, you know, try to cross-pollinate everyone. But like you mentioned, like, for example, like in fintech and the regulatory environment, the demographic environment, because it's just like massive market, you know, elsewhere in Africa. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you cannot compete, you know, on the basis of the demographics that you don't have, right? Or, you know, other such things and so forth. So I think we're extremely competitive in general entrepreneurship. I think that technically we are extremely solid. Where we have a little bit of disadvantage is market access in terms of demographics. And so the thing is that especially in, in pure entrepreneurship, in e-commerce, generally the champions start locally. So if you have somebody having like an access to demographics that are like four times your size, I mean, you have that kind of like imbalance. But that's on one side, you were asking me, what are the advantages? I mean, I would not even think a second. I'll just say deep tech. I just don't see anything, you know, capable of, you know, outcompeting us. Very, very honestly, why? It's just, you know, because education is a big thing and we have a lot of PhDs, postdocs, and, you know, people in science, essentially. Science has been almost like a de facto type of choice. And so you end up having a lot of, you know, scientists, solid scientists. And so in the same full, very, very modern and state-of-the-art labs. 
very modern. So that's, yeah, even when we work with the top universities in the US, they come visit our labs. I mean, literally, they can fall flat. On, and so that's why that gives us like an organic kind of advantage. Yeah. You essentially answered another question that came to mind then, which is, is that message starting to land outside of Africa? That you do have these strengths and it's not, you know, you are an ecosystem that is slowly one you can't afford to ignore, basically. Well, I mean, as you know, with many of these things, I mean, you just have this kind of like dominant kind of, you know, opinions or perspectives on things. So, for example, before we started doing this, you would see, you know, deep tech startups trying to go like the normal route, as in like mounting a business plan. But the problem is that there are so many complexities that like a normal, normal investor, like excellent even investor, this is like totally outside of their realm to understand the compliance, the maturity of this and that. And so truly understand what it takes, you know, to do some of these things. And so we had like this very solid exercise last year on the startup that does energy. And so that's where we really took note of what it took to truly understand what you're funding the next step. Because remember, you're talking about a project that is still totally entangled with academia. And so you have to resolve the IP issue, the attitude of essentially the inventors, if they want to, you know, go outbound with it and so forth. And so there's this whole thing, which is, you know, these sequences, especially like in biotech, you know, and each cycle can take you so many years. That kind of touches on my next question, which was, what are the challenges that you currently face? So, well, the challenges that we face, especially in deep techs, and your question was also, by the way, just the previous one was, is this kind of like ringing in people's heads? And so what I was, uh, the argument that I was kind of making, and I'm sorry, it evaded me, I had lost my thread of thought, is that, you know, there's this conception or misconception that, oh, you have a good idea. We'll just teach you like in a program for like three months how to do it, and then you're going to create a startup. So that's the main, most major kind of like inertial incumbency, if you will, of, you know, state of mind that you have to, you know, go past. And it takes many, many shapes and forms. So it's, uh, you know, number one, I mean, you're working with researchers. And so are you really willing to go start up and, you know, resign from the university system? So, for example, that can be a challenge. We have dealt also with IP in which way, pathways, like, you know, internal going out, you know, outbound coming in and doing these things. That has not been a challenge. I think that most of the challenge, like I said, for me, yeah, I can probably say this uh, very, very confidently. It's the incumbency of state of mind that, you, you know, people do not necessarily understand, you know, the hefts of this animal. That it's not, you know, you, like you said, you're not just pushing for like a fintech startup. I'm not demeaning or like taking credit for fintech. They're different animals. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like you said, it's many, many years. You have the regulatory environment. You're talking like PhDs and postdocs, massive type of equipment. And where are you going to do your pilots and so forth? So it's essentially at this point, this is why I mentioned that, you know, part of next year is going to be working with analysts to express this value that is kind of dormant within research institutions. Research institutions have always kind of, you know, trying to push for essentially the value of IP and so forth. But now universities have taken ownership of making sure that IP does not just stop there, that it continues. But I think that a lot of efforts to even with investors to explain to them, you know, the trickiness of that environment. And it's very different, like I said, from the US, where you don't have that organic combination of subsidy system plus a small portion which is invested. You have subsidy system that works with research beautifully, and you have investors that invest beautifully. But this cross-pollination in the realm of deep tech has not been made, 
and it takes effort to just explain how tricky it is. But now it is resonating. Are there enough local investors then, or is it still money from outside of Africa that your startups have to pursue? Honestly, I mean, to me, it's never been a money problem. I think I can state very, very safely that there is enough money for the pre-seed and seed phases, and in some cases for Series A. It just so happens that, like I said, you have enough money for those phases. The subsequent phases are different. They're supposed to be international, you know, capital raise exercises. And so as far as I know, like all of my fund is not extended. And as far as I know, my peers have not extended all of their investment. They're still looking for deal flow. But like I said, it's still emerging. So that's why for those startups that are, you know, generalists, seed phase, done. Series A, it's done. But when it starts going into the later phases that you need more money and you may have less of it, it is not the case now. There is also enough money even for deep tech, but it's just not deep tech needs to be mature enough to be able to resonate with the expectations of a you know, true investor. So that's why to me, I personally have never tried to raise more than the capital that we have. It's just because otherwise, you know, you're pushing yourself to just have a lot of money and not knowing what to do with it. And you start getting in the dangerous zone of just spraying your money around. I have buffer. And as long as I have buffer, that means I still have room. And so it is for the others around us. That makes sense. You don't want $150 million if you only have opportunities for $20 million because... Yeah. And, uh, and, and so also, I mean, if you will, I mean, my opinion. So say, for example, you're a startup, like there's a startup like in FinTech and it's in Africa. So of course, it makes its first few rounds, hefty type of valuation. And like you said, you're in FinTech, your business model is well understood by banks. But at the same time, it makes you very attractive to the likes of Stripe, you know, and other neo banks that look for, you know, access to new markets and so forth. And so that's why, you know, at some point, even if, you know, those startups raise a lot of money, a lot of it happens abroad. Because, you know, at those levels, let's just be honest, US kind of fund is not going to invest proper in Africa in a startup that is set up in Africa, you know, $400 million. It just does not happen like that. Generally, it's like the same in the US. They're based in Delaware. Same thing. Most of the startups, they get Series A, Series B. It's a governance thing. I mean, they just seek to be closer to where the pool of money is coming from. And like I said today, I, mean, I see many colleagues even across Africa raising in the tunes of 300s and such. And there's room. There's room. Is there enough talent for funds like yours? Do you find, could you fill your fund with staff easily? Yeah. So is staff working within the fund, you mean, or within startups? Within funds. So the investor side. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Morocco has the good fortune of having really good talent. A lot of people educated, trained in Morocco, abroad, in top universities in Morocco and in Europe, in the US and so forth. So yeah, you will not have any kind of issue finding best legal people, the best transaction services, you know, type of people and so forth. And so I'm really proud of my team. And so they do actually even impress, you know, some top VCs internationally. And we don't feel, you know, we're diminished, you know, with talent and so forth. So that's why, like you said, you know, our only challenge is uh, essentially the, uh, well, uh, we just have to hit the ground. And, you know, with our startups, just pay our dues, you know, cycles, time. Uh, so that's why I say even technically, you know, some of our startups are like bounce more advanced than other startups, you know, even in Europe or the US. 
thinking about this one startup that does like earth observation, you know, advanced algorithmics and so forth. And it's been built with a couple of people also. Some of our students that went to MIT and some people also that went to MIT as PhDs. So we have a couple, you know, a bunch of PhDs just there. So technologically, it's very, very superior to many other solutions. But other solutions have just the, if you will, the good fortune of being in the right place where there just isn't more money. How many startups you see, for example, even in Europe and the US, and the European one may be superior, and it's being quoted or valued, I don't know, factor of 10 less. You know that, you know these things, right? You have merit, you just don't have the other stuff that come with the environment. Yeah. As you said, quite a lot of you have the fortune to have studied elsewhere. You yourself, you spent an extended period in the US before you returned to Morocco in 2013. Did you learn any lessons during your time in Silicon Valley that you brought back with you to Morocco and are applying now? Every second was just another lesson. Yeah, indeed. So I went to Silicon Valley. I educated at Stanford. I did um, a master's in three disciplines. And so I even contemplated at some point after working in Silicon Valley to going back and doing a PhD and an MBA. And I just realized that, you know, essentially experience in Silicon Valley has this multiplier type of effect. I mean, essentially everything that I'm doing here on a daily basis, I developed and picked up, you know, while being there. I'm a pure Silicon Valley type of product with all that entails, you know, <laughs> in terms of demeanor and character. So I spent, you know, quite some time in the US and the most, in, you know, the longest, you know, part of my career and, and of all life in California in Silicon Valley. It changes you fundamentally. Is there something that Silicon Valley could learn from Morocco or maybe Africa more broadly? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not because Silicon Valley is where it is that it will not learn. So we do work actually with a lot of partners, even in California, and they're actually picking up lessons from us. Because to be honest with you, I mean, when you are in an efficient economy, many of these things kind of like just work in the background. But, you know, when you go to other places, you cannot just do this one thing. You need to do this and that and that and that. And so... We've been talking to, you know, VCs, CVCs, you know, academic type of partners and a whole bunch of different people in the U.S. And I think that there's as much learning, you know, here and there. And I think that at least in terms of pragmatics, it becomes really interesting, I think, you know, to our partners in the U.S. It's just because they just see something very different. And they look at the way that we have sort sort of like circumvented this kind of issue or challenge that they would not have thought of. And so it just makes for so many anecdotes. And so when you're talking to somebody there, you get a lot of, hmm, uh-huh, hmm, uh-huh. And so you know at least that you're stirring some juices there. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. You've very diplomatically described some of your portfolio companies, but not named any. Oh. Can you name me some examples of portfolio companies? Oh, no, no, it's not like being political. It's just that I'm just afraid I forget somebody and I get beaten for it. <laughs> no, I just love them all the same way. So maybe one way of how do they even kind of like degroup it? So, I mean, obviously, since we're talking about healthcare, so this is, uh, and maybe it has an anecdote in its own self. So Deep Echo. So this is an entrepreneur. He's Moroccan, you know, studied in the UK, was working for Morgan Stanley and decided to launch the startup that does fetal growth, you know, malformation. I was really impressed by the demeanor of the entrepreneur and so in that particular case the collaboration in addition to the investment was hiring two phds within the university we have another project that kind of emerged from internally right and it was like a maintenance type of solution and it's called oms 
it's very, very nifty. They develop their algorithms with MIT. And so they use like a tablet, like a PDA with infrared. And so the device listens to the acoustics of the rotating machine and the heat signature. And it can tell you what type of you know, maintenance intervals to sort of like plan for. These both are Moroccans. Another one that emerged out of research, or at least like this, um, you know, patent that won like the first prize in South Korea, it was this photonics, you know, an intrusive light detection type of, you know, thing that has become like a glucometer. I'm just, you know, trying to think through. We have this startup in Israel. And so what they do is that they hack photosynthesis. So they have found a gene that makes a plant lazy. So what they do is just knock it off by way of CRISPR. And so it goes about giving you more tubers of potato and better quality tomatoes and the like. Wow. So as part of the work we're doing with them is, you know, doing pilot. So we're essentially what we're helping them with is working with them on their CRISPR roadmap. And we're essentially negotiating, we, UMCSP Ventures, you know, the licenses with the company that owns the IP. And yeah, we're going to be working with them on pilots in Morocco and in Africa. It's just, like I said, like this other one that does algorithmics that I mentioned with MIT. So what it does is we have soil data a little bit everywhere. we we'll work with partners to at least have, you know, that type of information so that we can give better recommendations. And we kind of analyze very uniquely, like all the data from satellites and so forth to be able to infer something about the health, if you will, of your culture. So we can even determine the phase of growth of your plant and tell you how you need to intervene on them. Working also with another startup that works on algae, it's Israeli as well. And so they work on packaging, you know, in the food sector. There is another one also, you know, the Novo Dairy, which does precision fermentation. And so they work on, you know, milk derived protein and also immunity type of enhancing proteins as well that get actually, believe it or not, removed from the natural milk because they're very, very costly. Huh. Yeah. And obviously, uh, some ERP, some, like I said. Oh, yeah, another one, post-harvest loss. So this one is in Silicon Valley. And so we're looking at two startups to essentially deal with what we call post-harvest loss. There are massive losses in the value chain, you know, after you have to the produce some 30 or 40% losses. And so this technology allows you to extend the shelf life twice, three times. And so it's an organic biofilm. You just kind of like dump the produce in a liquid, in a solution. But anyways, yeah, I see I, the name is Acorn for this one. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but I invite people to just go visit our website and just see. I wasn't necessarily expecting a full list. I just, I always <laughs> quite like hearing a selection because I think it gives people quite a good ideas. It's one thing talking about deep tech, but it's, then it's another thing to kind of go, well, these are the kind of the concrete things that we actually have. And I mean, pretty much all of them have, you know, global potential. There's not a single one where I think. And, yeah. And, and, and so again, I'm sorry, I'm just going back to this question, which was, how do you source? So our sourcing is very, very intentional. Sometimes we want to understand like, what is it that is, you know, a proof point that we need to validate to make sure that if we want to scale the system, we can call it proven. So may choose somebody in a particular, so for example, agrobiosciences. So the thing is that when you look, we're invested and then afterwards, oh, we need to invest, for example, in code base. Oh, we want to invest in RNA, you know, based, you know, biopesticides or something like that. And so afterwards you go like, okay, what is the right profile for me? I want to look for a startup that has a bottleneck themselves. Maybe they need more researchers or they need to do the pilot or. So that's why, you know, I was talking about the multi-pronged type of affair. And when you ask me about these startups, you know, a way I have of looking at them is that like each of them 
has a story to tell. And the bunch of them tell you the whole story about, so that when you ask me, like, how are you going to scale this in Africa? Are you sure you're going to find talent? Are you sure you're going to be able to sign up that? Are you, you see what I mean? So we try at least to build the portfolio in such a way that like each of these things kind of like validates something and it can be scaled. So if we hire two PhDs for this project, can we work with the Ministry of Education, with the universities, you know, across the board? What are your ambitions? Like how many PhDs do you want to get trained in bioinformatics? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly from where I'm sitting, I'm in the UK and I noticed this fund in Morocco. So I think <laughs> you're doing quite fantastic work. Thank you. We are very nearly out of time. Is there anything else that you want people to know about UM6P Ventures? I encourage them to click on our website. It's UM6P Ventures. Hopefully it's going to be posted somewhere. Or if you see, please, the name of my company, you just added .com to it. And we're very happy to continue to work with any partners in the ecosystem, you know, on the support side, so any type of research institutions. And we do work even in the UK with a couple of institutions like Rothamsted Research, Cranfield University. And so even jointly, we have Pan-African type of agriculture type of project. So if you're in deep tech, you know, either founder or, you know, with ideas or an institution and kind of wanted to work together to, you know, change the world, at least, you know, our side of the world, we'd be happy to talk to you. Amazing. That is a very good call to action at the end there. Yasser, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been great talking and learning more about UM6P Ventures. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at GUVenturing, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thehelis at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Do 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 do